full cast and crew is part of the Chuckler Podcast Network. Other Chuckler podcasts include Alpha Ohm, the meditation app for those who want to be the best and crush anyone who stands between them and their goals, with an open heart, of course. Alpha Ohm, when you know what you want and what you want is inner peace. Damn it. Which I like. I mean, you nor should she? Well, I don't know. I think it's a little bit unfair for her to impute that motive on on that. Uh, <laughs> oh, you think on that, that young girl? You think that Fiji Water didn't tell the Water Girls to insinuate themselves and to look directly at the camera so as to obtain hundreds of thousands of dollars of free marketing time? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they said like, "Stand here." Give everybody water, but I, I don't know that they uh, oh. expected too much more than that. But who knows? Maybe that's my naivete. Well, I'm surprised you get the back of a multinational corporation. Look, you can't argue with water. True. You know? Um, the listeners might be able to hear that wind. We are recording in a 50 mile an hour wind situation here in New York City right now. So oh. if the windows blow open in an apocalyptic commentary on what we're doing here, you'll know <laughs> you that know, God I, himself has issues with Peter Farrelly's Green he's Book. He's like, I loved this movie. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's not saying that, but let's not kick us off with your inimitable custom open for the week. I'm looking forward to a good one. Ladies and gentlemen, presenting full cast and crew, thrill as co-hosts Jason and Chris try to tame a ravenous piece of filmed entertainment, marvel as they, using only the full cast and crew section of a movie's IMDb page, conjure greater resonance and meaning than the filmmakers could have ever imagined, and gasp as they dive into a discussion for upwards of 120 minutes, which will come to you as a tight hour five. That's the whole thing? That's the whole thing. Hmm. Okay. So in other words, it might be time to start thinking about alternative opens for the show. <laughs> uh, no. You're not a fan uh, of the circus? Uh, well, you know, I think it's one of those things like I'm reminded of Fonzie on the water skis. <laughs> you know, there's a certain time in every series where... You know, maybe a week off or so from maybe, the sure. from the intro. Maybe you know, <laughs> bring back maybe, an old script or two. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll try it out things. next week, and oh. you, you know, take a couple weeks Absolutely. off and see if you come back with something fresh. <laughs> I kind of thought that with each episode, you would come in with something sort of uh, not specific to, but in the universe of the film that we're discussing. I mean, in all seriousness, the thing that I keep uh, trying to stick with is thinking: what is the defining thing about the show itself uh, uh, that I want to present in such and such a way? but I think maybe you're right that I should worry more about the film. I'm sorry, what'd you just say? Say that part again? I said, I'm probably right in my... Imp- oh, I thought you said maybe you're right. No, that's no, no, what that's I wanted to hear a, again. Sorry. It's <laughs> the difficulty with the, uh, <laughs> with the recording, obviously. No, but I think maybe you're right that instead of worrying too much about the... Uh, Mechanics? Mission of oh, the, mission. the podcast. I, wouldn't worry about the, I don't think that your statement of the mission is going to make or break the mission. The mission is the mission. <laughs> the mission we are true. ourselves. We do what we do. I would just go for creativity. Yes. I think that we look to you in the open to always be bringing something unexpected and new and occasionally referencing something like scrimshaw or line printing or something that is sort of outdated for the rest of us. Um, One little housekeeping note, Chris. Um, I don't have any viewer mail this week. However, I did have a funny comment on Facebook from our dedicated listener in Sweden. Oh, our friend Josh is a dedicated listener. And as far as I can tell, is holding down the entire fort for full cast and crew (laughs) in the entire nation of Sweden. So, Josh, thank you. Empires were built with less. Thank you for listening. It must take the audio waves a long time to get over there. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, I wanted to share this note because I thought it was kind of interesting and funny. Josh says, a little note to encourage you guys to continue with the specific thing you do on the podcast. As your voices are not entirely dissimilar, it is very helpful, at least to those of us who want to know which of you two is speaking at any given moment during the podcast, that you relatively often call each other by name. For me, it's a plus and wouldn't mind it being done even more regularly. Or perhaps if one of you simply developed a more distinct affectation, perhaps a mid-Atlantic accent for one of you would be an appropriate tip of the hat for film aficionados as yourselves. That sounds like a great idea. Well, Josh, this is Jason speaking. Um, I don't think of you and I, Chris, having 
similar voices at all. No. But, but maybe we do. I'd love to think that the actual substance of what is being said might also be a tip off. I'm starting to think that maybe Josh isn't as close a listener as he perhaps <laughs> purports to be in Sweden. He's getting- <laughs> Maybe the headphones are different over there. I don't know. Well, Josh, thank you for listening and spreading the word. We're Supposedly. Supposedly. We're looking forward to our eventual um, Swedish podcasting tour. Yes, it'll be- And uh, skiing. Do you ski, Chris? Oh, yes. You do? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I would not think of you as a skier. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty good. Really? Though I don't do as much you know, in the past few years, and I've kind of plateaued. In terms of skiing, when we go to Sweden to visit Josh, or rather when I say when Josh organizes the entire <laughs> Swedish podcasting tour- It's not I, when we go, it's when he brings that's true. us. That's In my mind- this ends or includes a portion of us traveling the world. Yes. So, Josh, I mean, let not, us know. If not for that, why would we be doing this? I think it would also help Josh to understand who is who, who's speaking, if he were to meet us in person. Good point. Because I've never heard anyone else be confused. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe they're not listening either. Anyway, today we're here to talk about Green Book, um, which I'm very excited to talk about because it is rife with so many layers of discussion. Yes. We can talk about the movie as a movie in terms of the plotting and the characters and the acting and whether that all works. But really the conversation that is now springing up around the movie is much more interesting to me. And it's the conversation about who should or who gets to tell stories of a certain type. It's a conversation about race in America and the whitewashing of African-American stories. There's all kinds of things that are now coming out because we are in the silly season of awards time. So anything that anyone ever tweeted, said, did, took out of their pants is now coming out of the woodwork and being used to um, castigate the film. When I saw the trailer, I thought, this looks like a pretty cheesy reverse driving Miss Daisy kind of white savior, magical Negro approach, if you're familiar with that cinematic term. Yes. Um, That's what I assumed it was. And indeed it was that. Yeah, you got it right. Got it in one. However, the two actors are fantastic throughout the film. They do a great job, despite the inherent underlying problems of the why of this movie. I don't want to avoid singling out Mahershala Ali and Viggo Mortensen, particularly for giving very good performances in a movie that just has, for me, some very fundamental perspective issues. I agree with you in that every cliche and sort of bad thing you could say about it is pretty much true. And I'd add on top of that, there is the story of just sort of Hollywood trivializing or making easy problems in general to to Mm -hmm. fit it into um, If we just go on a road trip together, Chris, racism could be solved. Uh, you know, my, or at least, uh, for the brief time that they're on the road together, because there's no end card that says, and then guess what? Tony Lip went on to devote his life to the civil rights cause. No, he just went back to being a nightclub captain. Yeah. For a while until he started appearing on the Sopranos. Um, I was surprised when reading reviews after the fact, a few of them were positive in saying that there were elements of it that worked as a film, because I was surprised that at what I thought was was really shoddy for the most part in terms of the filmmaking. There were scenes, and I do think Mahershala Ali's performance was amazing considering the material. I was less impressed with Viggo Mortensen, I think partially because I guess I have seen so much of that stereotype, that character, that to me it looked like... Um, I guess well-worn ticks and stuff like he's a he's an excellent actor. I like watching him, but I, but I thought that he was certainly outclassed by Mahershala Ali in the, just the amount that he, that he brought to the character. Yeah, I mean, I think they're both limited by the material. I think that it's a road movie, it's a buddy movie, it's a um what's the term when you have two people that sort of don't shouldn't belong together, like a mismatch uh No, but what do they call that? Uh a, you know, a Screwball? Like no, screw it's like a buddy comedy? comedy, but they don't belong together. There's a film term for that, isn't there? Buddy comedy? <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I, it's like uh, uh, like an odd couple. Okay, sure. Okay. Yeah. They're like an odd couple. Now, I, I think that in terms of the mechanics of, of it being a movie, if you take out the politics, which is impossible to do, but I think in terms of a well-worn, traditional road picture buddy comedy it's efficient as it moves through all of those stops along the way. I thought that Vigo 
Yes, he has the odd positioning of being the lens through which we are experiencing the story as viewers. That's a very initial and fundamental problem in a film that's going to have this title. And we can talk about that Mm -hmm. later. There's been some good writing about that specific issue. However, Vigo is so good that I thought he brought this character to life in a way that as far as the stereotype of the good racist, which is, I guess, something that the film tries to posit to us, the idea that like, he's a good racist. These are the bad racists, the ones in the bar that want to beat uh, Don Shirley up. Those are the irredeemable racists. Through exposure to the black person, He overcomes his upbringing and environment. And that's the fundamental problem this movie is going to forever have is like, who gives a fuck about that guy's transformation? He's not the he's not the interesting part of the story if there is one. And this is a story based on a real person's life, supposedly, Mm -hmm. in air quotes. Mm -hmm. Once you go to start going down the rabbit hole and you start reading about Donald Shirley and listening to him, it becomes more interesting. Mm -hmm. And I suppose if the movie is good for anything, it is good for the conversation that will spring up and hopefully that people will discover these Don Shirley clips and maybe read more about the real person who, just like we've talked about in many other films, far more interesting and dimensional than even Mahershala Ali is able to bring together the screen. And I agree with you. I think he did a great job, but they're both just sort of limited by this faulty construct. That's how I keep thinking about the approach. I listened to the DGA podcast, who should really be sponsoring us for all that we talk about it. But I listened (laughs) to Peter Farrelly this morning and he's talking about how, you know, it's a road picture and he was very conscious of being a white guy doing it. However, there were some errors in the approach that that came directly from his mouth in this in this podcast in a Newsweek article that I just think are inexcusable. And it has to be said, even for Mahershala, who got caught up in this um, this initial backlash that happened from Don Shirley's surviving family kind of expressed some confusion as to why no one ever talked to them, right? So not Nick Vallelonga, not Peter Farrelly. In fact, Nick, Peter, and Mahershala all say the same thing, which is, we didn't know there were any surviving family members. And in fact, in the Newsweek article, Peter Farrelly goes so far as to say, um, which which I was sort of like, I had to... Look this up twice just to make sure this was a real quote mm-hmm. because I could kind of couldn't believe um, that he was really going to go here. I might have misread it. I thought that Vallelonga said that he had actually spoken to Shirley and sort of got his he blessing. He said he spoke to Don Shirley and he claims he got right. his blessing. But however, not to the family. Well, and however, that's that's not that's no one really knows if that's true or not. Right. But he certainly didn't talk to the other family members. Apparently, what it was that Nick Vallelonga would ask Donald Shirley frequently over the years, can we make a movie? Donald Shirley would say no. And so uh-huh. Donald Shirley relatives are saying like, you know, it's kind of strange that he's claiming that eventually Donald Shirley gave him his blessing. Right. The, the part that I'm finding kind of incredulous and hard to believe is that Peter Farrelly in this Newsweek article basically says the people whose job it was to find other Shirley family members didn't do their job. He yeah. basically throws them under the bus. Um, and Mahershala, it has to be said, he says the same thing. He says, well, I didn't know there were any relatives. And I'm sorry, if you're going to take this on and you're going to take on the role of playing someone who was a real person, I, I don't care if there are people assigned to the production whose job it is, is to go find any living relatives. I think you have to you have a responsibility both as the actor and certainly as the director to make sure yourself that you've done that groundwork. Uh, I was just reading something in another magazine about a black filmmaker in Hollywood who has a production entity and the reporter asked him, you know, how do you decide what you want to produce versus what you want to direct yourself? Mm -hmm. And I thought he had a very smart answer, which was like, well, you know, there's certain stories that I am aware I'm not the right person to tell this story. And so I hand it off to someone who is. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny to me that Peter Farrelly, I mean, I guess if you're looking at it as like, hey, this is Tony Lip's story. Yeah. Um, then sure, Peter Farrelly may have a take on being a ethnic regional white guy. However, you can't, then don't call it Green Book. Right. Like, which is, which is a freighted name for I'm just afraid it's a very important it's piece an important of, thing. Uh, of history and, and you're, you're actually yes. putting all i'm just wondering because it seems to me if you just call it tony lip i'm not saying you don't still have the same problems in terms of the like white saviorness and the magical negro aspect 
But if you call it Tony Lip, does it reframe it so that we might say, well, I mean, yeah, it's another sort of white savior yeah. movie. I'm not really that interested in it, but it's not pretending to be anything other than that. I'm a little bit more sympathetic for Mahershala Ali as an actor as opposed to a director, just because I do, I don't know, I guess I do think every actor's process is different and what goes into why you choose to take a role, what you hope to accomplish, what you hope to bring to it. I don't know that it necessarily means that you have to reach out to the family and stuff like that. But at the same time, you're right that when you are dealing with a based on a true story or a nonfiction story anywhere on that spectrum, there is a different kind of responsibility. I thought the character that he did make out of it was actually fascinating. I don't know how different it was or wasn't, but playing him as somebody who was that controlled but had these complications and had this a seething anger, a feeling of aloneness, I thought he drew a fascinating and created a fascinating character, and it was very sad because I didn't sort of read about too much of the controversy until after watching it. It was sad to see that, oh, this thing that I thought was a, an interesting defining complication of him being having sort of cut himself off from his own family uh, to think that that wasn't uh, based in truth. I mean, I guess that's the way the script might have been, uh, you know, been written. But well, again, but again you can't as bad. a filmmaker set out to make a film where you're going to say the guy was cut off from his own family and have those words come out of that character's mouth and then have the family members come out of the woodwork after the fact and say, hey, that's not true. He yeah. was always in touch with us as a family. If you're an actor and you're playing someone who was a real person, you have a responsibility. You're the person on the screen. You're the person who's going to either get the awards or not. You got to make sure that you have done whatever work you need to do. And, and again, in a situation where you have living relatives, and I'm just sorry, in this day and age, it can't be that hard to find living relatives of someone sure. who is a person of renown and, and fame like Donald Turley. Nick Vallelonga is the son of the Tony Lip character. He's the guy that wanted to make this movie forever. Peter Farrelly tells a story that um, he was introduced to the concept of the movie because he ran into one of the screeners and said, what are you working on? He said, oh, I'm working on a story where a black classical pianist is booked on a concert tour through the Deep South in the early 60s and hires New York's toughest uh, bodyguard to accompany him. And at the end of the trip, they become friends. And Peter Farrelly said, I heard that. And I said, wait, what? That's a great story, mm -hmm. right? And I suppose it could be a great story. But the problem is, is that, and it's not just in this day and age. I think there's so many things that we've even talked about on the podcast where you're looking at things through a political lens in 2018, 2019. However, I actually think this movie is an interesting case where our culture hopefully has progressed to a point and I think we progress extremely slowly in America, particularly with regard to race relations, right? If at all, slowly, if at all. But we have progressed to a point where a movie like this can come out and feel antiquated in its approach. Some of the, uh, some of the writing about the movie kind of hits it on the head where, where it's been called, um, a writer in the, and, and Jezebel.com said, you know, Green Book is another film about race for white people. That's mm -hmm. an extremely true statement to me. Mm-hmm. The audience for this movie is white people. That's who the movie is speaking to. That's who it's trying to make feel better. Um, and in doing so, it sacrifices really the humanity, the dignity, and the story of the black people and the black person at the center of the movie and of their experience of racism in general in our country. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just like, that's not, you know... That just feels not okay anymore if it ever was okay. If there, yeah, <laughs> and I think that's... Uh, that is a problem because, like you said, too, because Tony Lip or Tony Lip's uh, Nick Vallelonga, I think, to have his perspective on his father's thing is, you know, that's fine. You know, mm -hmm. you, uh, that's, you know, that's his story to tell. Uh, but to then do it in such a way where, like you said, the whole point is to feel good about it. Like, there is a lot of complicated stuff going on, like you said, between the, the race relations and the class relations uh, the difference between the individual and the community, all of that stuff is interesting and there mm -hmm. is so much to it. And like you said, we are in a time now where I think we are very conscious of all of that and we can't look to anything without knowing that those things are there. You can't kid yourself that, mm -hmm. they, that they aren't there. And the fact that, uh, again, an established Hollywood filmmaker, his idea was to shave all of that off to make it, like you said, a feel-good movie about it. It's enough yeah. to just sort of touch it, but to but to not um, go deep into the, 
the real contradictions, the real difficulties of dealing with it. There are a couple scenes, a couple exchanges where I think it comes close to that, again, because of the uh, the performances. I'm thinking particularly there's a scene where um, Tony Lip, spoiler, I don't even know if, there's no spoilers. There's no spoilers. <laughs> where he'd run into some other guys from New York who were like, yeah. hey, come to, and so he's going to go, and again, I take him at his word that he's going to go to turn down the job. But the, the scene where Dr. Shirley is confronting him, mm-hmm. but confronting him in a way that you could tell the dynamics of, of his fear and mm-hmm. respect, but, but he's in a, in, in mo- much of the other, uh, in much of how they deal with each other, he's in the position of power, but here he is in a place where he feels uncharacteristically vulnerable. And Mahershala Ali makes it, again, fills it with all of that. And Viggo Mortensen, you know, there's an acknowledgement of a certain worldliness that, that, as he puts it in that scene, like, oh, I've been working in nightclubs. I know the world is crazy. And that's sort of, that is the closest it ever comes to sort of going into the messiness of all of these, of all of these things and how the power dynamics uh, intersect and change depending on the situation that you are in, in a given moment. But that's about it. And, you know, again, it was, that was one where the ending is a feel-good ending. You know, the end of the scene, you know, he says, I was going to turn him down anyway. So uh, so it doesn't really sort of go too far into it. The whole thing is, but uh, but it at least acknowledges or sort of tips uh, tips its hat toward the complications uh, that this that this relationship would have actually had. Yeah, I guess. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's Mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Kate Young in The Muse writes a great sentence. She says, with its insistence on the pretense of loving our way into racial harmony, the movie exists almost exclusively to allow white moviegoers to nod sagely about, quote, how far we've come, end quote, before calling the cops on their black neighbors for not waving hello. (laughs) Which is a true story, by the way. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That happened. Okay. I don't know if you remember the story. There were... There were three or four people who had rented an Airbnb in a neighborhood, I think, in California. Uh-huh. And they were leaving, and a white lady was driving down the street as these people were leaving. I think two or three of them were black, and maybe one of them was white. And the white lady driving down the street waved at them, and they either didn't notice her or didn't wave at her. Yeah. And she called the cops. <laughs> so I mean, it's horrible to laugh at. It's uh, just like when you—I I think that when you do some reading about Donald Shirley— um, the movie posits him as a closeted gay man and an alcoholic. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. The, the world that he in real life would have occupied in, in either of those realms must have been a pretty essential part of his life, if true. And we only really glimpse at them here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of part of the, it's like Don Shirley got lost in the, in the, in the white Hollywood myth-making of his own movie. If, mm-hmm. if it is, you know, it never was his own movie. I get right. that. But it's just one of those things. It's sort of like, if you went back, you kind of like, could you ask yourself, why are we doing this? Yeah. <laughs> why am I attracted to this story if you're Peter Farrelly, right? If it was me, I would say to myself, this could be a good story, although... I would look at the the Tony Lip character and I would sort of say, I mean, so what? So a, so a, so a racist nightclub bouncer befriended a black guy. Mm-hmm. Is that enough to hang, hang a whole movie on? Yeah. It, for these filmmakers and writers, that was enough to hang an entire movie on. You would look, I would look at it and say, wow, this, this guy, Donald Shirley, is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, a, one of the things the movie did get right, by the way, in a little bit of the available film of Donald Shirley, excuse me, Donald Shirley playing piano. Uh, they, they got his piano playing right. There's a, there's a few clips on YouTube, which are, which are pretty amazing uh, to watch the facility, the dexterity and the mix of classical music and popular music. That was kind of his thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they showed that to some degree, but uh, you, you, you I just find myself thinking of like the moment where Peter Farrelly has shown this script and 
someone along the way could have said, okay, you know, the Tony Lip character, I mean, I've seen that in movies a million yeah. times. It's 2016 when they were trying to talk about this. Like, do we really need a movie about how a white guy was changed through proximity to a black friend that he makes along the way, despite his own, like that, that viewpoint seems dated and unnecessary right now, yeah. unless the story is like Tony Lip was a racist and through meeting Donald Shirley, he actually changed as a human being and then contributed something to the world <laughs> based on this friendship. Mm-hmm. Right. Either that or just made it more complicated, like made it, ug- frankly, made it uglier because. Uh, well, that's the good racist, bad racist thing that the film wants you to sort of invest in, which I think is so stupid. No, but I'm, but I think, the, again, like you said, this has been done so often before uh, to make it not a feel good thing that doesn't end necessarily well or that. Uh, sure. That sort of. You mean leave it makes, a little more. Leave it a little more ambiguous. Revel more or yeah. not revel. Allow for more of the complications in um, in the characters might have been because, you know, you know, maybe it's a, it's a cynical thing that he was saying, like, you know, listen, race relations are hot now. <laughs> people are going to love this. And there's a lot of people in the middle of America who will love, you know, this kind of story. But like you said, there's a. There's a lot of those stories that have already been done. I'm looking up the Green Book box office to see if that's true. Um, I don't know. It's only made $35 million. So well, yeah. that's not a lot of money. True, but um, you know, they might have people have made those bets, cynical bets before and not uh Well, I'm just saying it's well. it's you know, perhaps an example of that outsized attention for something that Yeah. <laughs> that even if your bet was like, oh, white people in the middle of the country are gonna flock to go see this. Because yeah. it's like a movie about race relations that they can feel okay about seeing. They're, yeah. they're not going and seeing right. it. Right. Uh, another interesting take on it, there was a really, there's, there's been some good writing about it. There's a good article in The Grapevine by Monique Judge, who writes a fairly in-depth and kind of engrossing rundown of some of the problems that she, as a black woman, has with the film. Um, and while she was writing this piece, she uh, reached out to the studio and uh, had asked, I guess, the you know, Harry Belafonte had had reached out to the studio that made the film and said, if there's anyone I can talk to to encourage people to give the film a chance, please point them in my direction. So when she was writing this, she got an email from Harry Belafonte. And this is what he wrote. My wife, Pamela, and I just finished watching Green Book. And although I don't usually do this, I am compelled to drop this note to thank the filmmakers for having made this film for all of us to see. I knew Don Shirley and in fact had an office across the street from his at Carnegie Hall. And I experienced much of what he did at the same time. This movie is accurate, it is true, and it's a wonderful movie that everyone should see. The few people who appear to be objecting to the film's depiction of the time and the man are dead wrong. And if the basis of their resentment stems from it having been written and or directed by someone who isn't African-American, I disagree with them even more. There are many perspectives from which to tell the same story and all can be true. I personally thank the filmmakers for having told this important story from a very different lens, one no less compelling than any others. So again, I say to the filmmakers, thank you and congratulations. Harry Belafonte. Now, a couple of good points and, and one point I would disagree with. When he says the few people who appear to be objecting to the film's depiction of the time and the man are dead wrong, well, it's his own damn relatives that are, de- <laughs> that are objecting. I do think it's an interesting question raised, which says the basis of, if the basis of a resentment stems from it having been written and directed by someone who is an African-American, I disagree with them even more. That's an interesting question. You know, can a white person tell a black story? Uh, can a black person tell a white story? Can a man tell a woman's story? Can a woman tell a man's story? Any version of that. You mentioned a movie the other day where a filmmaker was telling a trans story, but mm-hmm. it wasn't trans him or herself and was being subjected to some of what yeah, Harry Belafonte is pointing girl. at. And I think this movie does raise that question. I would agree with Harry Belafonte. I'm more on the side of anybody can tell any story they want. If you're moved by the story, 
obviously you're free to go and try and tell the story. However, you'd kind of think that Peter Farrelly would ask himself what it is that he's responding to in the story and what what the story has to offer us all. Praise of the movie sort of acts as if the movie has some grand lesson for us. Well, what's the lesson? That some two-bit outer borough racist got his head turned about 45 degrees and his change is the one we're supposed to be invested in at the expense of this much more interesting character that just the apartment alone, which again, if you go and look on online, some of the actual footage of Donald Shirley, who lived in this amazing apartment in the Carnegie Hall apartments. Right. Filled with crazy objects and display cases. And the real thing that you can see in the YouTube videos is even more amazing than, than it shows in the movie. It just, it's just like, why? And that's the the risk you run, uh, I guess, when you try to tell a story like that. Like, you, you do know that you have a higher hill to climb when it's not your story. Well, I think you have a greater responsibility to get it right. I was going to play a clip from the movie because one of the one of the things that Tony Lip does throughout the entire movie is eat. How is that? Salty. Have you ever considered becoming a food critic? No. Not really. Why, is there money in that? I'm just saying you have a marvelous way with words when describing food. Salty. So vivid one can almost taste it. Hey, I'm just saying it's salty. And salt's cheating. Any cook can make things salty. To make it taste good without the salt, we'll just see other flavors. That's the trick. I mean, take the basic ingredients. We should really get going soon if we expect to get to Pittsburgh by dinner. Hey, when I was in the army, I know a guy from Pittsburgh. Except he called it Titsburg. But he said all the women there had huge tits. That's absurd. Probably women in Pittsburgh have larger breasts than, say, women in New York. Guess we'll find out, huh? <laughs> Interesting choice of clip for the filmmakers to put on the EPK. Not sure what that tells us about the movie. I can guess. It's sort of enjoyable watching out of context. Because well, like I said, the performances both... are, I mean, you know what? I, I, I think that the friendship between these two actors felt, feels real. Yeah. Like the, the way they were in it together. And I think Mahershala said this a little bit in his uh, Golden Globe speech. You could tell there was a real affinity for each other and that they really enjoyed acting with each other. And I do think that they embody friends. They embody a friendship in a, in a way, and in, in, in even in that scene, um, there's something there between these two men, which is which is a bond, and yeah. they did communicate that. Outside of the performances, the actual scene where you have Doc Shirley starting to subtly mm-hmm. rib him, and you can see that he's sort of enjoying it. It takes uh, Tony Lip a little while to figure it out. Without the context knowing that this is less of a character than the actual person was, or the um, easiness of the race relations as a whole, I can see why they would say, like, this is an enjoyable two minutes taken out of context. And I think the movie has a lot of that, and it is surprising, and you know, this gets back to my bugaboo about Hollywood in general. This is such a unimaginative script. Like I understand, <laughs> you know, road movies are road movies and yeah. like you have events and and like I, I get all of yeah. that, but you would think that somebody with 20 films under his belt or so with like Peter Farrelly has would do something a little bit different. And if Well, it's different for him. This is different for him. And this is instructive to Hollywood, to your point. Even Peter Farrell, he's got a great box office track record. Right. That's not really my taste in films. Right. If you like the movies, great. He's made a lot of very big, successful hit movies. And when they were going around, he had Viggo Mortensen. He had Mahershala Ali. They had both been nominated for Academy Awards at the time they were trying to put the movie together. And he still couldn't get any studio to bite. Yeah. And he said the studios were saying, well, this is kind of a stretch for you, isn't it? And he's like, what are you talking about? It's a story. It's a story. I tell stories. It's a story. I can right. tell the story just like I tell any other story. Well, it's such a it's such an ironic film because if you accept the premise that Peter Farrelly saw this material and responded to it and decided to do it and that there was an opaqueness that he himself possessed that he wasn't even aware of that caused him to kind of get what he got wrong, wrong. Mm-hmm. That in itself is such an exact statement of what's wrong with white people and race relations in America. Yeah. He thinks he's doing something good, but in doing something good, he actually marginalizes the very person who's at the center of what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, he made some decisions to center Tony Lip in the story. Mm-hmm. And yet he also centers 
the African-American experience in the Deep South in the story at the same time and in choosing the title. Why did you even call it Green Book? Yeah. Like, it just seems like such a bad choice. And he also, a little bit, I have to say, he throws Octavia Spencer a little bit under the bus in another interview I saw because she's an executive producer of the movie. Right. She had a speech during the Golden Globes. Did she? Or maybe she was a presenter of something. I think. Oh, did she present this as a best? Something like that. I just didn't know that she was involved in it until then. He quoted her. And again, it's like, it just feels a little bit like he's using her for cover, right? Mm -hmm. He's sort of like, well, Octavia said it was okay. And, you know, he's very effusive in praise of her as a person, as a producer. But he does say, you know, the scene, the fried chicken scene, where Tony Lip is enjoying a bucket of fried chicken and Kentucky Fried Chicken. Kentucky Fried in Chicken. Kentucky. In when Kentucky. When will that happen? Yeah. I wonder, they must have put money into it. Kentucky Fried Chicken? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there were, that I seemed know. to me like they blatant They're product it placement. quiet. Peter Farrelly says, you know, I was nervous about that. I said, you know, I don't know. Should we have that scene? That's pretty freighted. And he kind of says in this interview, like, he says she was laughing in the edit room. She was laughing so hysterically. I thought, oh, I got to keep that in. Mm-hmm. And he also uh, says the same thing about running the title by her. Mm-hmm. And saying that he wasn't sure, you know, should we call it this? That's, that really has a lot of weight and import to it. The, the term Green Book, are you sure? People can have different opinions. I think, you know, to be charitable to him, you know, maybe it's not that it was cover. Maybe, he's, you know, it doesn't realize or doesn't no, think no, no. about how It's to- cover if you're mentioning her in an interview where you're being called to task. It's cover to say anything other than, you know what? I'm the director of the film. The buck stops with me. That was my decision. Even if he did ask her or not, he's putting her in front of him and the interviewer to say, yes. hey, she said it was okay to have a fried chicken scene. She said it was okay to yeah. call it Green Book. I guess I'm, ag- That's I'm cover. agreeing with you that, it, that treating it that way as opposed to saying, look, I thought about it. I talked to people, he said, taking responsibility for it himself because presumably he was like, this is the, the due diligence that I have to do. That he did go through what he thought was an appropriate way to vet these things. I don't know if it's a good scene or a bad scene. Like, I don't know. There are so many other things that, that bothered <laughs> me about the movie that something like that, you know, as we saw with Harry Belafonte's opinion versus, you know, a lot of uh, younger uh, African-American people's opinions, opinions can vary about these things. Sure. So that's why for me, I keep coming back to what was the movie actually doing up there on on the screen? And that's why it becomes like, you can't get past the fact that it just jams so many easy signposts in mm. uh, and is and is unimaginative. Well, at the Golden Globes, a reporter asked what message the filmmakers had for the members of Dr. Shirley's family who disapproved of the film. And Octavia Spencer stepped forward and said, I'll take that one. She said, you know what? I'm a little troubled that answering that question could cause them any more distress. So what I'd like to say in lieu of anything directly to the Shirley family is what it meant to me, because I've been a part of four films from this era. And it was the first time I saw a person of color with agency. And And I thought, this is a guy I want to know. And this is a guy whose story needs to be out there for the young people who are still in the resistance. So for me, it was about the idea that there were people like Don Shirley in the 60s, and we never saw that on film. That's what I took from it, and that's what I still take from it. I thank Pete and Nick and Mahershala and Vigo and all the filmmakers for putting their hearts into it. So that's what I'd like to say to the Shirley family. He meant a lot to a lot of people, and I'm glad that we got to share the story. To me, that misses the fact that you have to ask the question, is Don Shirley lost in his own movie? It's about Tony Lip saving Don Shirley. It's the white savior trope. The agency, what agency do the, does the movie depict Don Shirley having when you enter a scene and Don Shirley is handcuffed to a steam pipe naked next to another naked man and it's Tony Lip whose street smarts and savvy have to be brought to bear to get them out of this jam? The agency that was communicated to me, though this is complicated in its own way, is everybody else talking about him <laughs> and saying, like, you know why he's doing this tour, don't you? <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, but, but Chris, when everyone else is talking, they're all white. But no, I, I realize that. So I said it's complicated <laughs> in its own way. It's not way. complicated. It's totally fucking one-sided. Um, you know, he as a character. You know why I mean, he's doing this movie? Too, you know why he is doing this tour at Great... <laughs> Because a great artist must bring the art to the... Why not fucking let Donald Shirley say that? Yes, I listen, I, I'm not defending it as a choice, it's but unbelievable. Like, the character had some of those complications, though. Yes, it was it was communicated <laughs> in that bottom. way. And as far as, you know, him getting uh, caught in, uh, in flagrante, what I liked about it, what I at least can appreciate was that this was not the magical Negro trope, that this was not somebody without his own problems and complications and difficulties. Yes. But his own, his own difficulties are used 
to show how virtuous Tony Lip is, how open-minded. It's so yeah. insane to me that there's this scene where Tony Lip stumbles across this aspect of Donald Shirley's life. And I actually thought, and this is, you know, again, the, the scene that immediately follows the uh, him springing him from the jail. Right. There's a scene between him and Mahershala over a car and Tony Lip says something like, you know, why don't you tell me about this? And 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 Dr. Shirley says something like, I assumed that was part of the story you wanted to remain free from or something. Right. He, uh, Mahershala really does a good job conveying the emotions of that scene. But everything you're going to everything you could point to and say it this this showed me some of the depths of the character is always, always, always either put in the mouth of a white character that's around the yeah. scene um, or is for a white character to step in and solve his drinking problem. Well, guess what? Tony Lip has to show up at the bar and save poor Don Shirley is being bounced like a pinball between the three bad racists. Hire someone to do a white savior pass. I'm not saying it would have been savable, but maybe you could have. Like, it would have just had, it would have had at least one problem, one fewer like, problem. One fewer problem. Full cast and crew is brought to you by Behemoth from Monkey Brain Comics. Behemoth is the dirty dozen meets the fly with little Spider-Man thrown in. Kids are turning into monsters and the government steps in to keep things quiet. Some are never heard from again, but others are forced on suicide missions on behalf of a world that hates them as part of Project Behemoth. Find it on monkeybraincomics.com or Comixology today. I want to play a little actual Don Shirley, a little backstory in this, and I encourage people to look for this. There's a filmmaker named Joseph Astor, and Joseph Astor made a film about, I don't know, 10 years ago called Lost Bohemia, which is about the eviction process for all the apartments above Carnegie Hall, because obviously the real estate was priceless. Right. Hmm. Okay. So that's where in the movie you see Don Shirley living, that amazing apartment filled with incredible things. There's actually were a bunch of apartments atop Carnegie Hall right. that were rent controlled and many... Artists lived there from the 1950s on, and I think Donald Shirley lived there from 1950 until he died. So Joseph Astor also lived in one of these apartments. He's a photographer. Donald Shirley was someone that he filmed quite a bit in this um, in this area. Uh, and so I'm going to play a little bit here. Uh, this is the first thing you're going to hear is is a is a clip from the 1950s of Don Shirley appearing on a television show playing the piano, and then there's a funny moment where. One of the things that the family does say the movie got right was that Donald Shirley always tried to educate people and always tried to uh, educate them about African-Americans of distinction. Mm -hmm. And in this little clip that you hear after the piano playing, he's taking Joseph Astor to task for not knowing about Paul Robeson. about Paul Robeson even see that something's lacking again even in your education in the public school system that's my point so there's no reason that people should not know the contributions that the man has made to America in general or to the world they couldn't put him in jail what if they could have put him in jail they would have but no what did they do the nasty bastards they took his passport away they wouldn't let him work in this country and wouldn't let him out of the country to go make a living in England or any place else that's nasty. They broke him to the point that he couldn't sing anymore, he couldn't go anywhere to make a living. Confiscated his house. That's America. That's America. So, granted, this is Don Shirley some 60 years after the events shown in the film, mm -hmm. but you can see someone who so clearly has a passion for civil rights and a sense of justice, and seems extremely different from the version of Don Shirley we see yeah. in the movie. It's jarring, isn't it? To listen yeah. and watch him and think, wow, this guy's way more kind of 
an outsized personality than this very dignified, well, was, restrained internal character right, that we're the showing. Right, the character uh, in, in the film is yeah. defined keeping that dignity about being restrained, yeah. about being in control. This guy I want to spend more time with. I mean, yeah. my God, you can't see, but look at the apartment. This is also where the New York Times fashion photographer Bill Cunningham famously also lived yep. above Carnegie Hall. And I think these are all gone now. Donald Shirley was evicted in 2010. The piano playing that we heard in the first is incredible. I mean, to watch the, the fingers and the facility extremely, extremely talented. And in just a 20 second clip, you get that. Yeah. Certainly later in his life, he was a a much more flamboyant, interesting personality than the person we see in the movie. Though, uh, again, I I don't know why I'm trying to defend a movie I didn't really like. (laughs) But I don't know, that's just your nature, I guess. At least thematically, I think the, the character as written, as portrayed in the film, his change has to do with allowing himself to be more open. Well, wait, who does he have to be more open to? Presumably, you know, his, the white people. In wasn't the movie. say his his brother, his brother that he didn't write to in the uh, mythology of the, of the movie. No, but again, in the white savior mythology, Donald Shirley is this straight laced, uptight guy who needs to loosen up. Tony Lip is the guy who listens to black music. It's just, it's just the laziest trope. Yeah, I, like again, I agree with all that. I just, you know, at the very end, the fact that he, <laughs> instead of sitting home alone in his apartment, mm-hmm. looking around at that apartment, he does decide to. I would Ray go rather. Out. I would Ray rather have have Christmas dinner at the apartment we're shown. Uh, yeah, Don yeah. Shirley inhabiting than the. Italian American household yes, with had Sebastian Maniscalco or whoever uh, every that comedian time. is. Just to talk a little bit about the IMDb full cast and crew page, Vigo, Mahershala, oh, yeah. we both talked about. I think they're both excellent. Linda Cardellini, okay, not much to her role. But Sebastian Maniscalco, like you know, is a big comedian. He's a big like Madison Square Garden selling out comedian. Um, he has kind of a prominent role, which I didn't think he did very well. Um, Which character is that? He's just he, Johnny Veneer. Yeah, he's 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 kind of the guy who's he's this guy. You you remember him? When I see him, I, is you know, he like the brother-in-law? I guess he's the brother-in-law. Yeah, it's like, he uh, just, who cares? He's it, one of the Italian stereotypes. But Demeter Marinov, who played Oleg, was was very good. But he was the one who made all the pretentious speeches about you know why he's, he's doing say, this I, to her because he is so brave. Yeah, I mean all sorts of just people in there kind <laughs> of doing all sorts of crap. Uh, I thought, yeah, I really just thought very, <coughs> excuse me. You know, another interesting thing. Very little of it. It's an article that I had excerpted here. Anyway, there was an article that did a really good job telling you about the real Donald Shirley. One of the interesting things was that in his recording career, not too far removed from the time we're seeing in the movie, there was a white record label owner who changed Donald Shirley's biography to be more appealing to white record buyers. Mm. He was, uh, it was pretended that he was born in Kingston, Jamaica, instead of being born in like Pensacola, Florida. Wait, so which is true? He was born in Pensacola, Florida. Because I think, I think Wikipedia still says Kingston, Jamaica. No, it says, it says his father was, his ah, father and mother it, were yeah. Jamaican immigrants. But, yes. Um, so he changed that. And they actually, um, they, they said that he studied in Europe as opposed to, uh, studying in the music schools than, that that he studied in, in mm-hmm, America. Mm-hmm. So it's just another interesting layer that here is a person who was, and I don't know how complicit he might have been in any of that stuff at that time that you had any option as a musician, let alone a black musician. Sure. I'm just saying any musician signed to a record label. Do you really have much agency to use Octavia Spencer's term to say, hey, don't change my biography. Now, I'm not saying that he may not have participated in that willingly, but I think it's interesting. Well, that's to say, yeah, it's a much more interesting story either way, because that really is a tough choice as a black man, as a performer, to be given this devil's bargain. Like, will you sell a part of your soul, a part of your identity by changing this? Whatever choice you make, that's a, an interesting story that sure. I think is more interesting than, than, than what we have here. My larger point was, this is what happens when white institutions take on black people and black people's stories too often is they change them for either the marketplace or to suit their own uh, needs. And in this story, it's his, his, the reality of the man seems changed to suit the reality of Tony Lip, who, if you put both people in, in a scale and a balance, on the one hand, you have a fascinating artist who did not fit any of the archetypes or stereotypes, not only of his time, but even of today. 
So you have this classically trained musician. The, the industry tried to pigeonhole him into, oh, you've got to play jazz. You have to play popular music. You can't play classical music. But one of the things that, that one of his brothers, I believe, says in this article is the issue of his sexuality is raised. And he says, well, he always had a funny way of answering that. He'd, when someone said, are you gay? That Don Shirley would say, uh, well, are you interested? And if the person <laughs> said, oh, no, I'm just asking you to say, well, then it's none of your damn business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These are all more interesting things than I think the movie ever allows this, this person to become. You know, thinking back on it now, I mean, some of those things do enter into the movie, but always in buddy conversation in a way that they lose importance or the depth of it. I think even specifically, he does talk about uh, record producers wanting him to play uh, yes. jazz and stuff like that. And I completely forgot about that because that's not what's actually dramatized. It's used as fuel for him to be opening up to, um, yes. to Tony. Lip. This is something that doesn't usually bother me in terms of uh, true stories. It's like, I understand, you know, you take your story, you fashion, whatever you think is important to say out of it. You know, you may or may not like it. But this is a case where it's like, I really don't understand why make this fascinating that reduce him to just this friendship, which again, you know, could have been a perfectly interesting, you know, mm -hmm. there, I, you know, maybe his own life story, just in the things that you've, you've been telling me about. Mm -hmm. He's a fascinating guy. It's just insulting. It's just stupid. Yeah. I don't know. Let's segue to headlines. I was going to say that. <laughs> which are, already, I'm amazed. The first two are actually about, about Green this. Book as a segue. Ooh. So this is where Matt will play his great headlines theme song, which I love, Matt. Yeah. And I didn't know you could sing so well, Matt. Headlines. First headline, Green Book director Peter Farrelly, sorry for flashing penis in the past. Quote, I was an idiot. Uh, well, and he's, he used, he's not wrong. He used in his apology in the aftermath when this story broke yesterday in the 90s when I guess the Farrelly brothers were first becoming a thing. They had a hilarious bit where one Farrelly brother would say to the other one, hey, check out Peter's new belt buckle. And when Cameron Diaz would look over, Peter Farrelly hilariously had his dick out. <laughs> in his apology, he said, it is true that decades ago, it was like 1998, by the way, is that it is, it's like just technically just two decades. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Cameron Diaz is one of the people who was mentioned and she, right. she was quoted in an article in the 90s when this, she's like, how can you not? It's a sign of artistic, I don't know, she was basically laughing it off. So on the one hand, this is again the time we live in where you are the director of a movie that's getting awards attention. Every single thing you've ever done is going to Good come back, look back at yeah. So, but then, of course, there's a question of how you handle it. How do you handle uh, it? He's sorry for flashing his penis. Which, you know, again, not wrong. He does sound like an idiotic thing to do. There's a whole subgenre on YouTube of apology videos by YouTubers to other, <laughs> other YouTubers. What are they apologizing for? Spats, dissing on each other. Hmm. But there is- It's a subgenre. It's a whole subgenre. There's a definite kind of language that they use because they don't want to- uh, lose yes. whatever edge sure. you know, leads to being a YouTube star, but they don't want to alienate audiences either. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Well, speaking of alienating audiences and probably one of your lead actors, Green Book writer Nick Vallelonga supported Trump's claim that New Jersey Muslims <laughs> cheered 9-11 in a deleted tweet on his Twitter profile. Uh, he has not yet apologized. We're sitting here on Thursday recording this. I don't know if he's come out since and, and addressed this. But he deleted well, he the deleted profile. he deleted the tweet first. Like yeah. Well, he deleted the whole account. Deleted oh, the whole account. The whole account. The whole account right, is gone. Well, well anyway, you remember Trump said that he personally witnessed Muslims cheering in New Jersey as the towers fell on 9-11. Vallelonga, in a bad look for a writer who is going to be held to task for the verisimilitude and factual nature of his own screenplay here, um, he, in his tweet, he didn't just like retweet Trump's tweet about that. Oh, yeah. He said he, too, saw that himself with his own eyes when it's been widely debunked and disproven. Well, this does <laughs> not bode well for Nick's next project, which uh, had been getting some buzz. You know, we haven't even talked about Is this it. one of your classic setups for a joke? No, no, no. no. I mean, this is, this is true. This is true? This Green Book won the Toronto People's Choice Awards at the yes. Toronto Film Festival, which is fascinating to me. With a standing ovation. Well, it's Canadians. I suppose. And, you know, they, they want to like us. They're trying, they're trying to be as open as possible. But around that time, there was a headline, Nick's Next Project, Green Book's Nick Vallelonga to direct his script, That's Amore. That's Amore was going to be, or again, who knows? Maybe it still happened. A musical. Uh, a filmed musical about a 40-something guy who thinks he's over the hill with love and then goes to work at his family's pizza joint where he meets 
a woman whose last name actually is Amore. So uh, uh, I saw that movie that. when it starred Nick Cage and Cher. It was so much better. <laughs> but did it have songs? Well, yeah. Did it? Moonstruck? Yeah. Sure. I mean, I guess, I mean, it had a score, it had but a, it didn't it have, it wasn't a musical. No, it wasn't a musical, but I mean. Uh, next one. How a legally blind man sees the bird box challenge. Um, to which I posted, does he though? <laughs> Aww. Didn't get any love on Facebook. Yeah, really? Maybe it was, ow, I have a muscle cramp. Oh, shoot. Ow, ow. Both of them are cramping. We're <laughs> catching. I mean, should ow. I do something? Ow. Should I do something besides comment? <laughs> That's what you get ow. for making that blind joke. Woo. That incense. That was God. That was God. That was God striking me down for making a blind joke. Wow. wow that, Welcome that to 50. Up really Welcome quickly. to 50, Chris. You know why? That's because I went to the gym this morning. Ah, I see. After That's going, why I've started. After going to the gym it. yesterday morning. I don't know, man. You ever have a muscle cramp like that in your leg? Boy, it hurts. Never that seized up that quickly. Yeah, that was, that was embarrassing. It is a pity that we are not a uh, visual <laughs> medium. Here's a good one. Robot killed by self-driving Tesla in Las Vegas. <laughs> Finally, because I've been worried about the robots taking over. No, it's going to be robot on robot violence. As my friend Gordon would say, it begins. <laughs> what do they call it when the machines achieve uh, intelligence? Is that the singularity? The singularity, yes. There was a number of robots making their way to a booth at, I think, like the <laughs> National Electronics Show or something in Las Vegas. And so these are like humanoid rentable robots. One of them stepped out of line and into the parking lot and a self-driving Tesla <laughs> ran it over and killed it. Oh, which that's is fantastic, right? I will say, I do find that as a human, you know, who's going to be first on the chopping block when the singularity happens, mm -hmm. uh, it's good to know that artificial intelligence is just as dumb as natural intelligence. I'm going to need a self-driving car because if these leg cramps continue, Chris, I won't be able to operate any pedals. Jeez, that hurts. <laughs> so, I am God. sorry. I'm glad I mean, that happened on- Don't let my laughing- uh, I know, I'm glad it happened on, on camera here, or at least on tape. I don't know if the moment will be, uh, will it be apparent to the listeners when we have the final product? I'll play it up. I'll add like a slide whistle <laughs> and like a boing, you know, all sorts of sound effects. Please, please don't do that. <laughs> let me see if I have another couple headlines for you here, Chris. I feel like I, I, I shortchanged the headlines segment by starting with two Green Book related- Ah, uh, but it was a good segue. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's really nothing good. In general. Well, everything uh, is too, everything involves like, you know, too, too much seriousness. Yeah. Uh, I just wonder if anyone's in a podcast that's entirely about visual things yet. Like an art podcast, like a discussion of great paintings. I mean, I've heard segments where they, <laughs> they talk about it. You read like H.P. Uh, Lovecraft at all? Sure. You know, one of my favorite things about him is how often uh, like a prose writer mm -hmm. will use the phrase, words cannot describe. Yes. Like, like, I could, can't possibly describe words to you what a horrible describe. thing that I saw. Yes. It's like, well, then don't write a book about it. Yeah. Words cannot describe. So I did not describe yes. it. <laughs> uh, Chris, do you have any rants and raves this week? It's too late for this rave, but I'll give it anyway. I saw Head Over Heels. I saw Head Over Heels. What's the, that? Uh, well, it's closed the now. The Go-Go's musical? The Go-Go's uh, in Shakespearean time jukebox musical. I thought that closed like months ago. Closed January 7th or 6th. Is this, another really, Is this another installment of everyone hated it, but Chris loved it? Um, not everyone hated it. I think it got. Wait, basically between this and King Kong, if you go, if you went to see it, you're doomed. <laughs> If yeah, you're in the cast, right? I suppose if that's Chris good attended a show. Now, in in my defense, with Head Over Heels, it had already announced the closing date. I did go <laughs> knowing it was closing. Did you weekend. go because you knew someone is was in it? No, I like the Go Go's. Like that. You like the Go Go's? Yeah. Well, of course I do. What right thinking person doesn't? Wow, fascinating. That's one of like the four of bands that that are worthwhile. Really? I thought yeah. you weren't into popular music. Is it popular? <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't have closed if it was so popular. Well, I think the reason it closed is a bizarre mashup of two things that don't really belong together. Which is another thing that, uh, that to me is what was transcended. As opposed like, to, why not just do a Go-Go's- bizarre mashups. How about a Go-Go's musical that's just set in dumb 80s fun? Yeah. That I would have probably went and seen. What, it was just like some Shakespeare meets the Go-Go's? Yeah. I don't want to Yeah, with that. a lot of like uh, <clears throat> sexual politics and trans stuff. And, sounds uh, it was brilliant. Great. It was fun. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, so, Did you keep the playbook? Uh, I think I left it somewhere. Mm. Underneath your seat <laughs> for someone else to clean up, you snowflake. Well, I'm, a, I'm a snowflake for <laughs> taking advantage of the cleaning oh, you're people. you're a snowflake for enjoying all of the highfalutin politics of the show and then leaving your playbook under your chair 
for, for some proletariat to clean up instead of disposing of it yourself. Like I said, I think I brought it with me somewhere. Well, I I did you have said it. you think you did, but you can't really... It's, I'm looking at you, and I can tell you probably left it under your seat. No, I don't think I left it under my seat. Okay. More likely, I, I put, put it in my pocket. Did you pay for the tickets? I did pay for the tickets, yes. Okay. But did, I did they pay. have, like, merchandise for sale in the lobby? What was for sale? Uh, I think it was T-shirts. Beer koozies? What did they have? They might, <laughs> I guess on closing day, it's got to be, like, 20% off, off right? <laughs> something like that. Have you ever been on a show that closed too soon? I, I mean, depending on who you ask. Well, no, when do you know, I'm always curious, let's say you're in a show like that and it's midnight, the night that the New York Times review comes out, you're, you're all like out drinking at some Broadway establishment and somebody runs out, gets the New York Times, brings it back into the bar, <laughs> open it up and they're like, we're dead. That's it. Yeah. Like it's that quick. Yeah. Okay. Like you kind of know. First of all, nobody has to run out to get the paper anymore. <laughs> what do you mean? Like, I'm sorry. Say that, no newsboy. Throw me the latest, late edition. <laughs> um, hey, but you yeah, Mac. I mean, that definitely does have, you know, Two producers are on their phones the whole time, you know, while waiting to see when the thing comes out. I mean, I'm sure there have been other records, but uh, there was something called, I think, The Last Living Confederate Widow Tells All that Ellen Burstyn was in a mm. one-woman show that did That was close. a book, wasn't it? I think so, and I think it was an adaptation of the book. And it closed that night, because I think- uh, The same night? I think they'd sold a certain amount of tickets. They weren't selling great. They were hoping that the Times Review would change things. The Times Review was not good enough that they thought they were going to get a um, hmm. uh, a bump in sales, so they closed it, you know. Hmm. I mean, Tough they business. probably had to wait until 9 a.m. to actually put it into place, but I'm sure the decision was made at the bar that night. You know, one time, um, as a company, we invested in a off-Broadway show. You I didn't know, even get an audition. Uh, well, it was a one-woman show starring Judy Gold. Still. So unless you're Judy Gold, <laughs> you're really not going to have a chance. Um, anyway, it was a great show. It ran in New York, and it also ran in L.A., um, and it was hilarious. Very well directed. My wife directed it. Anyway, we were partners with a couple of other theatrical producers. Chris and I are in the television business. We're used to looking at contracts between cable networks and production companies and distribution companies and all those kinds of things. But man, the contract to invest in a theatrical production <laughs> is the craziest thing I've ever seen. Really? I mean, it basically says, look, you're going to lose all this money. <laughs> Since you're going to lose all the money, here's all the stuff you need to be aware of, which means you can't complain when you lose all your money. That's, you know what? That's very nice of them. Well, I mean, it's a business predicated upon the fact that many people are going to come forward with financial support not really because they think they're going to get rich or get their money back, yeah. but just because they like to do it. I was going to say, like, the word <laughs> business perhaps yeah, isn't even the right, the right word for it. You know, there's a famous adage. I don't know if it's true. I like to cite it all the time anyway, because why let the truth get in the way of right. a good adage? Hence the green book. one percent of actors make 99% of the money available to be made by actors. Like, if you think about the people that make $20, 25000000 million a movie, there's maybe five or seven of those people. Right. Maybe. Everyone else is probably not making a living. Right. And I wonder if, if theatrical productions are, are kind of the same, or at least the ones that you go see. <laughs> you know, it's good to know that they at least are upfront about it. Uh, that, yeah, uh, I guess. Any what other, else do you have, Chris? I'm trying to think if there are any other headlines, um, but I do know- Headlines. I, <laughs> I really love that song. <laughs> oh, you know what else I thought that we should start doing? Yeah. Credits. Credits? Yeah. Like, I think we should say something like, full cast and crew is produced by Chuckler Comedy, or full cast and crew is brought to you by Chuckler Comedy. This show is produced by Chris and Jason. I don't know if you want to give your last name out. Sure, you know, why not? People show up at your house or something. You know what I mean? Like, this is 2019, sure, can, man. You, you get doxxed. Oh, that's true. I don't want to be doxxed because I yeah. do have some extreme political we opinions. Show, like, it's, it's, it's produced by Chris and Jason. Yeah. Our very talented, handsome, informative audio engineer. Is Chris. Is Matt oh, Foglia. We'll give out Matt's name. He lives yeah. in the middle of nowhere. He lives in the boonies somewhere. You try to find it. Hey, this is Matt the Engineer. So the boonies, eh, more like outside of Nashville. You try and find him. If you can find him, good luck. <laughs> it's like the um, A-team. He's got great hair. He's got an excellent kiss collection. One of the friendliest. The band kiss. The band kiss. Not just smooches that he's gotten over the No, years. I don't know how you would collect that. <laughs> he's, uh, he's one of the nicest. I'm going to say this about Matt. I've worked with Matt probably, gosh, it's got to be going on 20 years, I would say. And uh, he does live in an undisclosed remote location, which I won't disclose. Nashville. Um, but when you did work with Matt, he's like the embodiment of, of openness and genuineness. He's one of the nicest people you're ever going to meet. Thanks, Jason. Checks in the mail. I don't 
possess any of those qualities, but I aspire to be as good a, as good a person as Matt seems well, to be. that's very, yeah. very sweet. So anyway. That's a very sweet thing to say. And, I, you know, Listen, my butter interactions up your, with him, he's, he's great. Butter up your audio engineer <laughs> yeah. is what I'm saying. Well, you know, I had a few um, headlines. <laughs> I just like the song. And, and I don't, did Matt also do the guitar theme for the Rants and Rave section? Rant. My guess is that that's pulled from a music line. No, I think, you think, he, he, really I think he plugged into the board and I think he played that himself. Matt, can you uh, break the tie? I think he will come clean. Point for Jason. Yep, that's me playing. That might, maybe that might be a section uh, for next week is Q&A. Q&A with Matt? Yeah. And then we'll record the Q's oh, like we and just record, the record, Q's. record the A's. <laughs> like, Matt, what are you wearing right now as you edit this? <laughs> well, Jason, I'm wearing a Kiss belt buckle, black jeans. And you are correct, Jason, as I assume you looked into your crystal ball. I am wearing a Gene Simmons belt buckle that were uh, issued with the solo albums back in 78. Uh, blue jeans, not black, and a t-shirt with an undisclosed logo. Did you have a uh, quote that you wanted to go out on? No. Because actually a, an appropriate one, considering uh, that we were talking about Matt, yeah. uh, might be the- and Well, don't give the name of the, the whole- Yeah, yeah. The, the whole- po- <laughs> I, that's why I stopped. <laughs> well, you start saying like you're going to give away the name of the movie. I think the whole point of the new ending is right. it's up to the listeners to figure out what movie it's from, if anyone even cares. Well, considering that we have been talking about my new, your old friend, Matt. That's the intro? And then there, it's the <laughs> uh, what last is it? line from- <sighs> Okay, that's a very obscure one. Right. I mean, no one's going to- But go for it. Uh, we go can also for it. Do, here are the four that I'd pick. You tell me which, which you think. And they were all meant to be sort of Green Book related. Okay. The last line is yeah, that's which, kind of a cliche, but okay. Uh, I guess that was less Green Book, but more uh, uh-huh. just because. Uh, which still, one? Which version? Uh, the newest, the newer, mm. which I thought was appropriate considering. That's kind of good for the Matt thing that we finished on, like the praise of Matt. Uh huh. If you can make that work. And the last one I was thinking was Japanese movie. Uh, though I think this is probably from the American remake. Like, Chris, Chris, let's just be clear on this podcast. If we're talking about like either the crappy American remake or the original, we're always talking about the original. This is all from the 50 best lines thing. It was the- Oh, Peter Farrelly citing the source for cover. <laughs> guess, you learned, guess you did learn something from Green Book after all. I was, you know, I actually think that movie was great. <laughs> if we were to play the last line from a Japanese movie in Japanese- It would be awesome. Well, then we could do that. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, then no, until next one, week. I think the one that works is the one that would that would be to go against, contrary to my own statement. Shocker, I know. <laughs> I mean, I, I was ready to, to weather I contained, that storm. Chris, I so, contained multitudes. Good Whitman quote. Thank you. Do I contradict myself? Very well, I contradict myself. I am wide. I contain multitudes. Well, listen. Uh, the only Whitman I like to quote is the sampler. <laughs> Oh boy, that means we should have stopped recording like 15 minutes ago. I was just, yeah, that sound. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm just trying yeah, to think of like, hey. what's another? Um, Chris's forced laughter. Something I don't even know what you're right. talking about. Trying I stopped to listening to lead you. Into, but that's all right. because <laughs> What? <laughs> that's, about as, that's about as interesting as my on mic uh, dual leg cramp. <laughs> all right, enough. Oh. So Daniel, I'm finished. Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I uh, just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at full cast and crew, or find us on Facebook.